Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, your week at IndyCar listener Q&A show. Big smile on my face. That smile is due to grand appreciation for Tim Falkowitz. Helped me for a little over a year to put together the questions each week for this show, all driven by you, 100% listener Q&A driven. Big smile, big thanks to Tim having to sign off. Good things happening at work, so that's where his time is going. So guess what? Who do we have taking the baton from Tim? That would be our man, Jim Kaiser. Yes, Jim, who sends in haiku on a frequent basis. A little bit of a a new dawn here. want to say thanks to you all, as usual, for sending in plenty of good stuff. Try and spend about an hour and a half each week getting through your cues with my A's and succeed sometimes, fail others. Keeping all my mistakes, for those of you who've been listeners for a little while, you know that I refer to this show as my unpolished turd. Yes, all the blemishes, all the failings of me encapsulated in each week's show, and I don't bother to edit anything out. So one of the kind folks who had offered to help goes by KP Green Gecko. Uh, He did send in a little couplet. He said, the unpolished turd won't go down the sewer. Now that Haiku Jim is the new reviewer. So there you go. We even got some little rhyming timing from our man, KP Green Gecko, to uh, get rolling here. What's the main topic of the week? We're kicking off with the one we tend to visit with a little bit longer than others. All brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, in TorontoMotorsports.com. It would be a little test at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. One where, I don't know, there might be some confusion as to everything the test was meant to be. And my pal, my co-pilot of IndyCar reporting at Racer.com, Robin Miller, put together a opinion column, reaction column, and whatnot. Some of you have sent in questions piggybacking off of that. So to get things going here, roll in our music bed once more. This is where we're going to start. IMS test, trying to replicate with two Chevys and two Hondas on Friday what the hybrid era come 2023, where we should have about 100 horsepower on demand, maybe, not totally sure how it's going to be deployed, but 100 electric ponies to add on top of these new and more powerful 2.4 liter twin turbo V6s. This test at the Speedway trying out some things. So let's go with the questions here to drive and frame things. First one's from Matt McDonald. Hey, Matt. Says, much love and well wishes to you, your wife, and the kitties. Says, questions regarding the push-to-pass test at IMS. Said, in your article, it sounded like they were running the P2P system with increased boost. The intent was for simulating the added horsepower that a kinetic energy recovery system would give. Says, but in Robin's article after the test, Rossi, Alexander Rossi, and Dirty Autosport said he didn't think anyone would use it till the end of the race because Indy is always a fuel saving affair. He says, does he expect the Kerr system to somehow burn more fuel or is he confused about what the test was simulating? Also, his next comment well, then everyone is going to use it to defend, so it's not going to change anything. Seems to negate the whole point of push-to-pass in the first place. Or is he just not a fan of push-to-pass generally? Great questions here, Matt. 
Got a few more on the subject I'll get to in just a moment. I was not 100%, Matt, what the <clears throat> download was like to either the teams or the drivers of what IndyCar was looking for. According to Jay Fry in, in an interview that I did with him, IndyCar President Jay Fry, last Thursday, he told me the push-to-pass number, the extra turbo boost that the four drivers would be receiving was 8-0. It's a big number compared to the 40-ish, 45 or so that they currently receive on road and street courses. So the whole goal here, try and play around, replicate what this 100 or so horsepower is meant to be like and feel like when used on an oval come 2023. Okay, got it. Cool. Couple things to just know up front. There is a 12,000 RPM rev limit that IndyCar has, and to my knowledge, it is not changing with the next generation motors. This oval curs package, we don't know what that is, right? They haven't told us. They know. They just haven't told us who's making it, what style. For those of you who follow Formula One, probably know that there's two curs systems on those vehicles. One which regenerates under braking, spins a motor generator unit off of the rear axle under braking, that charges a battery. Only happens under braking, though. The other system, which, as I understand, contributes a vast majority of the time, but it's not a massive contribution to the overall battery charging, that's through the heat-based motor generator unit there's a two main styles that i'm expecting they're going to choose one or the other you have systems where there's an actual shaft connected to the turbochargers, the spinning turbo and that crazy million trillion rpm spinning uh, there's a connection to mgu's and the spinning of the turbos under acceleration, obviously, hard charging, they're spinning up, you know, glowing red hot. They generate uh, electricity through the MGU, goes to the battery. So as you are accelerating and charging hard, well, you're making electricity. You're making electric horsepower. Uh, that's one system. The other is a dedicated, call it e turbo type system coming off the exhaust just like the regular turbos uh, but this is a dedicated system and the spinning of that turbine and generating electricity off of that that's how that's done through the mgh uh, process so not sure which direction they're going to go but regardless we know something in that area is likely to happen so what does that mean, though? Uh, I know I'm raising a lot of questions here, Matt, to start, but that's where we're at here, having to understand or predict some things to really grasp where it might go. We know that the charging the battery under braking, that's uh, pretty effective, uh, tends to generate a lot of the energy if the battery is empty or, or close to fully depleted. From the examples that I know, the MGUH direction, like we have an F1, like the LMP1 Porsche used, the LMP1 hybrid Porsche 919 used, and won all kinds of everything with. Definitely contributes to the charging, but is not a massive contributor. 
So since we're not really looking to braking as a big charging option on the ovals like Indy, we'd have to think that with the motor running and running hard and revving like we're used to, that's where we're going to be getting a steady stream of electric, electric ponies and charging going on. Question here, though, is will it fill that battery up at all times? Will it keep it at a steady state of charge so it can effectively be always on? There's always extra electric horsepower being fed to the rear wheels. I don't know. I hope so. And if so, will it keep it at 100%, 50%, 30%? I don't know. These are the things that I wonder about, Matt. What system can it be always on instead of push to pass? And if it is always on, is it going to be a light constant charge and deployment, a high constant charge and deployment? We don't know. But as we do learn these things, we're going to get some pretty interesting answers. So for Rossi example, saying, hey, we're always going to be fuel saving. Is it possible to, through software, if we're looking at the fact that we're at 12,000 RPMs at all time, you know, maximum at all times. Can we use some of the electric horsepower to reduce some of the internal combustion engine power output and fuel consumption, right? This is uh, certainly a question. We know that in the new FIA World Endurance Championship prototype formula, they're looking at 680 horsepower for all vehicles and for those that use turbos they want to make sure that once the KERS deployment has spent all of its battery well the engine horsepower comes up and while the KERS is say a hundred percent charged and giving maximum deployment well the actual internal combustion engine power is dialed down so that you're always at a steady state of 680 horsepower. Hmm. Depending, again, upon the system IndyCar uses, could it be an always-on, always-charging, always-deploying type scenario while the you know while we're green and the motors are spinning up and running hard? If so, again, could be interesting. Uh, could there be ways to pull down a little bit on the engine power and let the... Uh, Phil come in from the electric ponies who's done a better job charging. Could someone not use it, let it charge all the way up and then use that full charge compared to someone else who might be running the whole time with it, charging and deploying, but at a lower percentage again, don't know, but these are some questions and ideas. So this fits into the Rossi question. I would think if nothing else, Matt, that we're going to have to have some form of use of the electric horsepower, the KERS system at the Indianapolis 500. It's coming to the series in 2023. There is no way IndyCar, its engine manufacturers, and everyone involved would go through this entire exercise to have this hybrid power plant, one that relies on kinetic energy recovery and then not use it at its biggest flagship race. So I'm maybe overstating an obvious thing here, but the big reason to use this, the big promotional value for the entire year, 
delivered at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. So although Rossi and Pato and Newgarden and Dixon were maybe not the world's biggest fans of how push to pass played out in this test, guarantee you this is going to have to be used in some way. So crazy stuff. Hey, entering pit lane all the way down pit lane, doing a pit stop, leaving pit lane, pulling back onto the track. So we've seen in the FIA WEC Toyota, for example, was the first to do this with their hybrid uh, prototypes. The minute they hit whatever line uh, on pit lane, full electric and left full electric, did the full length of pit lane full electric. And once they crossed the exit line, motor fired up in a nanosecond and off they went. So I would say forgetting the racing side for just a minute, I would almost, I could not fathom how we would do the Indy 500 with this hybrid option and not have the cars using full electric power on pit lane. Imagine what that would sound like the first time with a field of 33 racing around to get to turn four and hit pit lane for whatever for the very first time during the race and everything goes silent. Granted, you'll hear the gearbox whining and a little chattering here or there, but that would be a pretty powerful statement. Also thinking about under yellow, right? Now, granted, if it's a long yellow, and it's a long track, too, at two and a half miles, again, we don't know the size of the battery, how much charge it's going to store, et cetera, et cetera. We don't know a lot of these things. But I would absolutely foresee IndyCar saying, hey, if nothing else, we're going to want to use this to demonstrate that when we aren't racing, we can turn off completely or, for the most part, um, the exhausts, we don't need to be producing anything out of the exhausts. We can go silent. We can go air quote green. Please don't send me emails about how nothing's green and this again, I get all that. Just saying promotionally, practically when we aren't racing, when we are not in a green situation, I would expect IndyCar to capitalize on that map right away and say, cool. That is our for sure quiet time using our curs system if we have an extended yellow motors aren't you know running and and charging and whatnot then i could see you know the need to have motors fire back up during a caution if it's an extended one even if they're lapping slow they're still in theory would be charging a little bit while the motors are idling or something close to that so again i don't think we're talking about doing 20 laps of caution with a single battery charge, but again, uh, we'll have to see. When it comes to the competition side, this is where I really do want to see what is possible. So for what Rossi says, well, wouldn't it suck to use it for defending? (sighs) Sure. Uh, It's a tool. It's a tool, and it's meant to be used to everyone's advantage. If everyone's doing the same thing, then there's no real advantage. Having to think about how this curve system would be used in competition at the speedway, I think that's the part that is coming out of this test. Clearly, the drivers weren't a huge fan. 
So how do we incorporate it not only during the yellow portions of the event, but also the green? How do we make it additive? Do we say that coming out of turn two and turn four, like in F1 where they have the DRS zones, you cross that line, and again, if there, if you're within a second, you get your uh, rear wing flap opening, upper flap opening. I don't know if we go that route where not so much a within one second or anything like that, but hey, you cross this stripe, this electronic stripe coming out of two and coming out of four, and if you, you're welcome to use what you got or don't, but you've got a but it cuts off. I don't know what at start finish or the halfway point of the backstretch heading towards turn three. So you're not just bombing a million miles an hour into turns one or three. Could that be a thing? It could. What I would love to do is to listen in on the debrief to close on your portion of this question, Matt, the debrief that IndyCar had among themselves. I'd also love to learn that IndyCar has sent or will be sending an email out, not just to those four drivers, but hopefully some more to say, hey, we got some ideas of how we might use this in competition on ovals. What ideas do you have? So I would say let's not get stuck on 100 electronic horsepower as purely a push-to-pass thing. Use it, play with it whenever, and folks zipping around and all kinds of, of madness. I think a bit of strategery of how it might be used in competition, I think that's where IndyCar might end up. Because clearly the answer is coming from some of their best drivers. <laughs> uh, was not favorable of the let's just use it like we have with the extra turbo boost. Uh, Sasha Khan, 24. Hey, Sasha, how you doing? Uh, says, I was excited about IndyCar's hybrid push-to-pass approach at IMS until I read Robin's piece on Racer. Rossi mentions that because the 500 is a fuel-saving race, no one will use the hybrid, etc., etc., and it's not going to change anything. Uh, she asks, is it possible in the spec year of the 500 not to be a fuel-saving race? Aha, uh-huh, here we go. To me, part of the issue is the wave-around rule where the cars that go down a lap end up getting their lap back during a caution. Cars don't have to fight to stay in the lead lap. Says on your Alan Jr. podcast, you mentioned how he spent the first half of a race managing the car and trying to stay on the lead lap. Says, I missed that. Without the wave-around rule, a leader would be more incentivized to put cars a lap down. Would that or any other realistic changes help move from a fuel-saving race? This is what I was getting at a little bit with Matt's question, Sasha. That being, hey, how could the electronic ponies replace some of the internal combustion engines workload and therefore potentially reduce fuel consumption? What ways can we allow the best to gain an advantage? Well overstated, Scott Dixon, the best at saving fuel forever. And, you know, we think that he actually has a fuel refinery under his right foot and he makes methanol, ethanol, whatever, while he's driving. Is there a way to incorporate the use of curs on an oval to take some of the burden of acceleration? 
uh, away from the motor in ways, in strategic placements during a stint where some might be able to do a better job than others. I would have to think so. So yeah, to your point, this is where I'd love to learn more of the possibilities. And I, again, at some point in time here soon, I'm told we'll know. If we're going to hybrid, there's a reason. From a marketing standpoint, IndyCar needs and has been years overdue of joining in on some form of green-ish thing. For the diehards that are listening, I get it. You don't want it, keep it away. Totally understand. Just saying from a time and the times we're in, uh, IndyCar has needed it to stay relevant within the auto manufacturing community. Great. So they're doing it. There's power that comes with it. Greater power. Acceleration. Cool stuff. Got it. Electronic horsepower. Off we go. Would say, though, that the, wow, look at the extra power we get. Eh, I don't know if that's so much the selling point in terms of the value that manufacturers might see. So it just leads me back to say, the more ways IndyCar, its teams, its drivers, the race engineers, the whomever might throw in some ideas of, cool, under yellow flag conditions, we can totally see the benefits of having electronic horsepower to save fuel either the entire time or most of the time. I think we can all agree on that. That would be a good thing, good marketing demonstration. How do you do that in competition, though? That, I think, is the place where you go, all right, if you can add that to the mix. Hey, we won the Indy 500 and use less fuel than everybody. Why? Well, our motor plus the hybrid system, I'm sorry, the kinetic energy recovery system that is integrated into the system, our teams, our drivers, our winning driver, better able than anyone else to get more mileage out of less fuel or whatever amount of fuel my Sorry, I'm a little dumb in the head right now. We done one by not using as much of that fossil-type fuel or synthetic-type stuff, and uh, we use the electric ponies to do it. I think that, in theory, Sasha, might move the bar pretty far away from being relegated to a fuel-saving race. How do we use this oval curse setup to remove that and allow... Maybe not 100% of the time, but the majority of the time, teams not having to put fuel in the bank. Uh, boy, I sure would be happy. And got to believe it's possible. couple more here on the topic. Ray Schumann just read Robin's story on Push to Pass at Indy. Says with the coming of hybridization, there needs to be a way to deploy that stored energy that works for ovals. If Robin and some of the other drivers are not fans of doing it in a push-to-pass mode, then what about using it as a range extender? Run on electric power during yellow flag periods, maybe. Again, uh, I think this is a no-brainer. And the reason I wanted to use Ray's question is it's just emblematic of what I think a lot of folks are thinking. Hey, okay, maybe the raw push-to-pass thing isn't necessarily the way to go. Um, Maybe let's think about the other ways where that brings value but doesn't jack up the racing. Of all the quotes in the stuff that Robin 
put together the one from Dixie about this isn't supposed to be easy. I don't really want to just push a button and go zooming by people or have folks zoom by me because if you can do that, anybody can do that and not everybody. That's why, you know, at 40 ish horsepower with the current turbo base, extra turbo boost, uh, giving harder acceleration, it's something, but it's not crazy. It's not cartoonish. It's another big picture question to think about here. And we won't go into it too deeply today, but with this hybrid package, it is meant to be something that's used everywhere. And like we're talking about IMS and the Indy 500, 100 horsepower is a pretty big number to deploy anywhere. 40, it helps. Not a crazy game changer. 100, unless you hit it and the driver in front of you somehow knows that you hit the button and they hit theirs 0.001 seconds later, okay, there's going to be no change. But at 100 horsepower on the you know, push button, which is what they've spoken about for road and street courses, I fear that actually might become not that what Dixie was saying was extended to every race. He was talking about the Indy 500. Biggest race in the world should be the hardest race to win. That's why he wasn't a fan of the concept there. I'm just saying uh, maybe his comments should lead us and IndyCar to apply a blanket mindset. Okay, if good old Jackwad whomever <laughs> can just hit a button and go by the car in front of them while running 20th in the field, and hey, now you're 19th, yeah, is that a good look? Is that something where you had to fight to get it? Or is your advancement in the field purely because you have thumbs? Boop! Hey, I could hit a button. Eh. Uh, yeah, so I don't know. Maybe this should cause IndyCar to rethink the overall approach to how its kinetic energy recovery system power is deployed. Look at that. We're adding more questions to the topic. Daniel Summerskill, our good pal Daniel Summerskill, says after the push-to-pass test at IMS, both Scott Dixon and Alexander Rossi were not in favor of using it at the speedways, where does IndyCar go now in terms of deploying that additional boost on the ovals? Wanted to keep your question, Daniel, because there's another factor to this stuff to bring in based on what we've seen in the past, and that is for series that have had hybrid power plants, the boomity-boom combustion engine, the electronic curve side making the electric ponies, Seen a lot of strategery applied here. And I'll maybe go back to the FIA World Endurance Championship first. If you think about the diesel-powered prototypes, LMP1 cars, Audi specifically, already the king of torque because of the diesel. Well, then you add the KERS system when that came online and became legal and kind of sort of unfair. There's nothing that accelerates harder than the instant deployment of electronic power. It's crazy. So you take an internal combustion engine, diesel in this case, that already beats 
everything else that's not diesel with torque. So it shoots off a corner harder just based on it being a diesel. Then you add electronic ponies to that as well. And it becomes a, come on, man, (laughs) no one can keep up. So rules come in that say, okay, well, no curves beneath, pick a number, 50 miles an hour, 70 miles an hour, whatever it might be. Thinking being, well, you've gone through the corner and started to accelerate. So we've taken away the electronic advantage piled on top of what your diesel does. So if we make you wait a little while till you're out of a corner and then allow it to come and well, in theory, that should balance things a little bit with the non-diesel engined vehicles and LMP1. And, you know, looking at what IMSA is thinking about with theirs coming in 2023, there's all kinds of caveats in place of it won't come in below this speed and the sun must be in this particular horizon and it, it's got to be a Tuesday at 4.23 p.m. I mean, all kinds of things to make sure that a little four-cylinder turbo or a twin-turbo V6 or a naturally aspirated V8, all using the same spec curves system, none of those motors, the internal combustion side creates an advantage because they might be better at lower speed power output and then you pile the curves on top of it and boom one prototype is kicking everybody's butt so just mention this because it's a it's an interesting question that will need to be raised here daniel for what indycar does with this curves unit oval or road and street course hey is it always available as we discussed is it always on is it on demand, you know, true, push to pass. Does it come in below a certain speed or, you know, hey, anything really low speed uh, and above, you're good. Do they move the bar up a little bit? So it's really not a instant power off the corner thing. Do they say, no, actually, we're going to wait till you're going really freaking fast and then let it come in. So then you get a top speed boost. I don't know. But I think that's another big thing they're going to have to work through, pontificate upon, and figure out. So, for those of you who don't give a flying fart about curs in the upcoming hybrid motors, I apologize. But for those who are curious, we got awesome questions this week. So thanks to all of you. Last one here on the topic. Like I said, we uh, tend to visit with whatever the big main topic of the week is up front and then get rolling a little faster through the rest of the questions. We're going to close on Kurs from a pal, Hrishi Deshpond, uh, and we're touching on a topic we've been on, but I want to uh, want to just use this to wrap. said, following on that test, says, for the ovals, is it possible to, instead of using Kurs as push-to-pass, use it as a constant boost like a hybrid road car might? I says, or would that require architectural differences versus the road course setup? Again, brother, this is the big stuff IndyCar is going to have to figure out. Do we have a blanket approach? Uh, all pits to all pit lane entries. And from the moment you exit at every single track we go to all year long, electric power, period. Yes or no? Don't know. Uh, caution periods. Will it be automatic electric the whole time or not? Again, There will be cases with long yellows where most likely we're going to deplete the batteries and the motors would have to fire up. Uh, But again, 
would everybody be at a hundred percent charge when they're pulling out from pit lane or when the yellow starts, could somebody be at a lower percentage charge? Is this a strategy? Definitely it would be right. You look at whatever race teams go to, I don't want to go off track too far here, but we're going to start the season at Barber. Well, every single team has, whether it's a spreadsheet or something a little bit more dynamic than that, of the past X amount of races, three, five, however many, with not only the race distance, but when the yellows fell, looking for trends. Aha! Uh, Round about lap 12 each year, on average, at Barber, and I'm just pulling this out of my backside, there's a caution. And then lap such and such. There, So, can't guarantee that's going to be the case. But at least if you see, hey, these things have happened somewhat regularly, that might help you to say, hey, uh, we might want to make sure that we are definitely all charged up when we're getting close to that point in time. And maybe we leave a tiny bit of performance on the table. Make sure that maybe we can actually go farther under a predicted yellow, what might happen. And maybe we end up saving more fuel that way. Again, don't know than the next person, but something to think about. This is where would say just to, to close the door on this topic for right now, I do not know if, how, or why, or whatever, IndyCar is engaging its two manufacturers right now, uh, both that have products that are hybrid, uh, some that are really moving towards full electric here before too long, but both Chevy and Honda uh, have kinetic energy recovery type systems battery charging, you name it, in their production vehicles. I really do hope that IndyCar is consulting with that side of both manufacturers to just pose some of these questions. How can we, how might we? I don't know what the specs were going out, Hrishi, on the curse system, though, right? Uh, and I'm not saying that they're done and baked and there could be no changes from this point on. But... What possibilities exist within the system? Could all some of the various scenarios we've discussed always on, always charging, always available, possibly charging? How much would it charge? Yada yada. When would it be used? They're always during cautions, partially. Again, what massive range of scenarios did IndyCar put into its spec sheet uh, when looking for a vendor to produce the systems? Were there auto manufacturers consulted to bring a lot of ideas to them uh, in this realm where they have great expertise and IndyCar did not, at least when the process started? What are we going to have? I don't know. I love it, though. I love it. Why? It's something very, very new. And it is going to force a bit of shaking up of things and rethinking of things and a lot of thing of things so i'm excited for the future and for those who fear we're gonna be all silent it's just gonna be indy 500 formula e it's not uh for those who fear the engines are gonna sound different or be weaker or less no they're not what you have now is what you're gonna have in a couple years maybe even sounding a little bit more ferocious so Put all that stuff aside. Put that stuff away. It's not happening. 
IndyCar isn't going silent. It's not going all electric. There will hopefully be some demonstrations of lapping the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and other tracks and using pit lane under full electric power. That's the marketing value. That's the thing that hopefully gets some other manufacturers to come in and play. And provided that's the case, this is a pretty cool thing they've chosen to do. If it doesn't happen at all, and we still have the two, that's great. It's also going to be sad because they are both just dreaming of having a third, if not a fourth, to join them and take some of the burden of supplying half the field away. All right. All righty then. We're going to our pal J.J. Gertler next. Seeing NASCAR on dirt led me to wonder, is there a viable ladder for sprint car racers to get to IndyCar? Or do they have to go get on a pavement early and come up the road to Indy way? So it used to be that they went to Silver Crown cars as a transition, but are the skills required of a modern IndyCar just too different for this generation's Poncho Carters and Tony Stewart's? Definitely, if there are plans to do road and street courses, my friend, Mr. Gertler, as we've seen recently, what, most recently, I think, with Kurt Busch, am I forgetting of another high-level NASCAR driver? Uh, yeah, not a crazy challenge to adapt to a super speedway uh, spec IndyCar. Think about Fernando Alonso, never done an oval life in his race, and he was seemingly on the path to a very impressive finish in 2017 as a rookie till his motor said, farewell, Fernando. Uh, we can think of some others. Uh, Max Chilton, for example, you know, new to ovals when he came to Indy Lights from F1, but he picked it up quickly. Ed Jones, same thing. Would say that the Cody Swansons of the world who won a race last year <clears throat> on a short oval, in an Indy Pro 2000, yeah, this is a guy who makes his living on the dirt, going round and round in crazy machines. So, yeah, I am not worried about the Ponchos and Stewarts and the whomever else's from USAC Silver Crown type world climbing in and figuring out super speedway stuff. But if we are talking about doing anything, Maybe it's a road course on dirt, right? Uh, Jimmy Johnson would win that for sure. But if we're talking ovals where not a lot of downforce by comparison to the max downforce type places we've gone, be it a Phoenix or an Iowa or similar, if we're not going to a place where we pile on road course downforce on an oval, I don't think it's going to be too great of a challenge for any, you know, uh, silver crown, midget, sprint car, whatever it would be, specialist to convert. Pile on that downforce as Jimmy Johnson is learning with every single outing. Oh, boy. That's just a totally different creature to figure out. So, yeah, let's go super speedway transition from World of Outlaws, USAC, you name it. I would love to see it. Um, yeah, too bad it isn't a thing. Brian Smith, similar, NASCAR going back to dirt, says if it ever stops raining. Race just got finished a little while ago. Joey Logano, your winner. Any chance of Penske ever putting any cars back on dirt? Because I can imagine Tony Stewart would jump at the chance to get them to Eldora. 
a question I think last week was it about this from a technical standpoint how feasible uh yeah there'd have to be a lot of changes all about ride height all about getting the cars up 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 way higher than they can go right now so there would have to be custom things done brand new things done in order to make that happen and also from a downforce standpoint we'd have to decide what type of track we'd want to go to bigger track smaller track whatever knowing that it's not as if the underwings on the cars can't make downforce at a bit of an angle but if you're talking about chucking these things into the corner probably not going to be making the kind of downforce numbers that you want or need same thing with determining what you're doing with the front and rear wings so impossible no cost money for sure this to me though sounds like such an amazing thing no it's going to take a real motivated person to make it happen i don't know if that person exists within indycar right now who just lives and breathes and will not be stopped until they make uh, indycars go run on dirt I'm struggling to think of an era where the modern IndyCar layout and format was used in such things. Obviously, we know IndyCar using roadsters and more midget-type formulas, but in terms of the modern era of missile-like vehicles, low-slung, high power, big wings up front and back. Uh, I'm struggling to think if and when this modern formula has been used for this. Not saying it hasn't happened, just saying it's not coming to mind. So if it hasn't, then there would indeed, Brian, need to be innovation yet again. And would it all be electric? Would it all be done with the oval curve system? A little bit of a joke, sorry. We'll call back there. Uh, Lance Snyder says, with Easter upon us, if IMS were to have an Easter egg hunt for all the drivers, who would win? Who, if they couldn't win, would just start chucking colored eggs at anyone in sight? Uh, Would Bison be involved, and would anyone notice Dalton Kellett? Oh, here we go. And then, of course, our man Joey the Priuses adds to Lance, would the Easter egg hunt be held in Joseph's new garden? You guys are killing. Uh, members of the Day, the sub uh, set cult. Um, I don't know what of listeners who, oh boy, continue to scare me. I love you, but I just say that because I'm afraid you're going to kill me. Um, all right, Joey, uh, go give us 50 eye push-ups or something uh, for the dad joke there. Lance, let's see, who would win? Okay. We're going to have to come up with a quick answer here and get rolling through a lot more questions. Who would win among the drivers? We're having to go with personality type, right? Pagano comes to mind first. I got to look through some more to figure out if there's someone else who would be a better choice than Simon Pagano. No, not him. No, not him. Uh... Yeah, I, power, power is like 
it, from almost a not healthy standpoint, overly competitive. Like the guy, every racing driver cannot stand to lose the good ones in an Indy car. It's pretty much all we have. They really cannot stand losing natural. It's supposed to be a part of their personality. Get it. Great. Then there are some who are kind of borderline. I think you might need some medication when they don't win and they go a little bit psycho. So I think power, and this would be a, a internecine fight among Penske teammates. Pagano, same way, cannot stand uh, losing to an unhealthy degree, but he's also the big planner, the big plotter. He's the person who will spend a lot of time. He will book an extra session with his mental sports coach and come up with the strategy. He'll have his race engineer, Ben Bretzman involved in some way, shape or form. Um, Simon would put in the most effort, the most preparation time, trying to think of all the different advantages and ways look to Ben to be on some sort of little earbud. Uh, I'm not sure what, but some little black embedded thing in his ear, not just, you know, AirPods, but something that you would find on your average generic TV detective, uh, CSI, NCIS, uh, FBI, whatever type show. Um, he'd be getting coaching and communication to find that egg. And if power beat him, we might have to sedate our man, Simon, for sure. Uh, by the way, did any of you see, if you give a fart, that yesterday was the seven-year anniversary of Simon and I doing our first uh, visor cam during an IndyCar session, that being at the uh, free practice one at St. Pete in 2014. We actually did two visor cams prior to that in testing, uh, one in IndyCar, at Sonoma Raceway and one when he was testing a rally car in France. So it wasn't actually the first one we ever did, but it was our first actual during an IndyCar session. And it, I guess, would qualify as a vaguely viral thing within our little world of motor racing, a whole ton of views. And, yeah, quite proud to see that not too many years later, uh, IndyCar uh, and a lot of good folks on the TV production side decided, hey, we need to do that ourselves and we've seen the visor cam thing really take off we were by no means the first person to put a camera on a helmet we were just trying to pick up where cart slash champ car left off uh 10 plus years earlier and there are plenty of folks who did it before that and so on and so forth but i'm just trying to think of something that i wanted to see in indycar but hadn't seen simon was like yeah i'm game the uh Schmidt Peterson Motorsports team said, "Yep, let's try it out." And hey, guess what? Visor cams, kind of uh, the norm everywhere these days. Uh, all right, where are we going? First time questioner. This comes from our pal Brian A. Cabral. Seen Brian on social medias for quite some time, and do appreciate you sending in something. He says. First time riding in, he says, with Red Bull planning to build their own engines next year in Formula One, could they be a third OEM for IndyCar? Huh. Love the idea, Brian. Struggling to think how it would come to fruition. We know that using Honda engines currently in F1, coming to an end at the end of the year, 
They're going to take over that program from Honda. They will be leading the development from there forward. They'll be badged as Red Bulls, we think. Um, They will be Honda-based. Those Formula One motors, different in every way from IndyCar's engines. They do share uh, the fact that they're turbocharged. Cool. They are V6s, but truly, they're so different from one another that there's really nothing common between the two that would make them legal in IndyCar. So if Red Bull were to decide to become an IndyCar engine supplier, it would have to do so with a brand new clean sheet 2.4 liter twin turbo V6 design. There's nothing saying they could not. I would just suggest that for where they're going next year and beyond, Brian, in F1, it's not based on desire to become an engine builder. It's because the partner that they have that makes a very good motor and came pretty darn close to winning the opening race of the season with Max Verstappen, uh, they're going away. And there's no great option that they could find and i totally agree with the direction hey we could try and do the renault thing again we i don't think mercedes is going to hook us up since we're currently trying to beat the pants off of them and have been for a little while uh ferrari i would say that ferrari might want the red bull engines if they could get them next year unless they come up with something a lot better than what they've been churning out so just This is a necessity thing, Brian, of the options to try and purchase services from other suppliers. They're not going to get what they want from Mercedes. Everything else as we've seen it so far this year is below Honda. So since they have the money and the desire, taking this on to make sure they have incredible engines, continue to have incredible engines, makes a ton of sense. That then leading to them wanting to become an engine supplier elsewhere, I would not connect those two together, my friend. Thanks for sending in your first question. Looking forward, hopefully, to next week with your second. Oh, this guy's back. Joey of the Priuses again. says, I've heard about Mario Andretti doing straight-line testing for Andretti Autosport at the NASA runway at Cape Canaveral, and I saw Alexander Rossi recently post something from there as well says, what does straight-line speed testing like this accomplish for teams? Really interesting stuff here. Believe it or not, Joey, just going in a straight line might not sound that interesting, but from a data collection standpoint, it really is. So you'll get a couple of things that teams slash manufacturers tend to look for. And I'm not saying that this answers your question with every possible reason why, but of the couple that are most popular... One would be correlation. So we're doing wind tunnel testing, running the car through all of its various aerodynamic permutations of ride height and bits and pieces that you can or can't use. Probably not the can't, more the can. I don't know why I said can't, but hey, it's my unpolished turd of a show. We'll leave it in. Might be doing the computer-based version of this, CFD, computational fluid dynamics, whether it's the real live world wind tunnel that you're in, CFD or both, they're going to tell you things that 
this angle, at that speed is going to do A. You can wait to hit the track at wherever and do your best to correlate that data and see that, hey, yeah, at that speed, it did A in terms of whether it was a downforce number, a drag number, center of pressure, or this or that, whatever it is that you're looking to learn. Or, and again, this is tends to be more the manufacturer saying we want to go do this, but sometimes you'll have teams decide to do it. They'll go do straight line testing, and that is something where cutting through the air without any real concerns about I'm having to turn, I'm having to brake, I've got other cars around. It is an isolated test where you can go and blast down a runway of whatever length tend to be longer than shorter and gathering data using all kinds of sensors on the car, take back real-world information to then compare and contrast, if needed, to the data generated from a wind tunnel or from CFD to say, aha, the our CFD says it should do A. It did A minus. It's close, but ugh, real world said, yeah, actually, there's a slight discrepancy. Not able to say there's a 100% correlation or 99%, whatever high, high number where you know if we make this arrow change, we will get this arrow result. When you're dealing with wind tunnels, you're dealing with virtual testing boy being able to add something like this straight line pure running again you hope there's not a huge headwind tailwind sidewind upwind downwind bit of a pure ish scenario where you can go blast in a straight line run up to high speeds and measure and then have that data to compare another thing that you will see as well you'll have coast down runs too where you go up to a whatever high rate of speed, and then whether you shut off the motor, whether you just lift off the throttle, you coast down. And that is also a very real-world way of testing aerodynamic forces on the car. Because if you think about not using the brakes to slow you down and using aerodynamic downforce, also drag there as well, the rate at which you slow will give you pretty darn good data as to what kind of numbers you are producing. So lots of things you might be after. They could be cooling aspects. They could be et cetera, et cetera. A lot of different things folks would want to try, but at least the two that I mentioned here, uh, those tend to be the main things that I know of. And if there's more, maybe some folks smarter than I will tell me. I'm going to take a sip of coffee here because my brain is trying to shut off just a little bit. We are going to Cody Oakwood next. Cody, MP Hope all is well. Sponsor-related question. Does the primary sponsor in a car have any say or veto power when it comes to secondary sponsors? For example, the company owner, president, CEO, or whatever, of the Marshall Pruitt podcast uh, loves the movie Driven. But the race team also has a restaurant owned by Sly Stallone lined up as a secondary sponsor. Uh, the decision makers from the primary sponsor, MP Podcast, refuse to be associated with or have their company name next to any owner of a company who doesn't love the movie Driven. Do those situations arise? If so, what generally happens? Yes, they do, Cody. Not as often as they once did. 
We live in a time where, boy, I think folks have learned, do not take things for granted. Do not assume. Do not make an ass out of you and me. Let me ask. Let me talk. So setting up the pecking order, without a doubt, a primary sponsor for a racing team. That's going to be the one that has the veto power. Whether it is presented in contractual form, often the case, not always though, but often the case, or just in the, hey, okay, uh, we are a company that has whatever reputation or is in whatever sector, and we would not expect you to bring in a associate sponsor that is competing in some way, shape, or form. Uh, and maybe we don't have the contractual veto power. We sure have the, you're never going to see us after the race and or season is over. If you do, we can definitely apply that leverage of saying we're done, uh, once the year's over, or if this is strictly the Indy 500, once the race is over, you're not getting us back. So one way or the other, Cody, this is the reason that most teams, the pretty much every IndyCar team, does their absolute best to weigh in with the most important member of their funding matrix. And also, I would say in some cases, there might be a little bit of bad blood between company A and company B. There's always, there can often be backstories. This is why you don't surprise. You don't surprise uh, MP Podcast by signing Sly Stallone's restaurant as the secondary sponsor. Uh, although I'd love that. That'd be pretty funny. Um, here's a thing to think about. You're going to communicate these things to your primary sponsor, provided, again, in the contract that such things are allowed, Right. Uh, hey, we get the entire car. It's all ours. Hey, it's great that someone else wants to be on the car, but uh, hey, uh, we pay for the entire thing. So no, really don't see that so much anymore. But yeah, it was a thing. One example that comes to mind. I believe I've mentioned this on the show before. I won't mention the team or the driver. Uh, next time I speak to that driver, I'll ask if I can mention them by him by name and the uh, companies by name. But think it was two three years ago at the 500 driver had a sponsor primary sponsor deal was done participated in practice i believe the qualifying uh you know press conferences press releases distributed image is of the car you know, before the month of May started and yada, 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 all the normal stuff. Hey, here's a car. Here's the driver. Here's the sponsor. Look at pictures of it. Read about the company. Woohoo! Indy 500. Here we come. Went through practice. As I mentioned, I believe went through qualifying. So this would have been what? Four, five, six days of running with the sponsor on the car. And I didn't notice this until after the race. Love the driver, love the team, so on and so forth. Uh, I don't recall them being too much of a factor. 
could be wrong but whatever it was it was like cool you're in the race i'm happy for you but i'm gonna focus my attention more on those who i expect to be up front and didn't happen to catch that that sponsor was off the car for the race and found out after oh there was a big explosion because one of the team's long-standing sponsors long-standing sponsors sizable contributions to the team over many years including this year in particular well they sell products that i don't know if i want to say compete directly with this vehicle and its primary sponsor but the old timey sponsor of the team that was still there as a part of the team sponsoring they definitely felt it did so whether the average person would agree or not totally immaterial cody and this is the make sure you talk and ask to the the people who spend a lot with you first uh right make sure that didn't happen and that sponsor the long-standing one said uh they're not gonna be on that car as long as we're part of this team if you want us to be part of the team and they weren't i don't know the backstory beyond that of how things are reconciled financially obviously the company that came off the car paid to be on it for the indy 500 was promoted as such uh i don't know all that side but i do know that this was described as the super sponsor foobar uh that's effed up beyond recognition um episode that i think was kind of sort of the biggest one in recent years so always ask even if the main sponsor doesn't have the contractual right to say no think big picture if you're just on the brink of collapsing and you got to have that associate sponsor that might not be a great fit you don't want to have to tell your primary hey thanks for all the money you've given us by the way we're about to fall apart and i gotta have this to stay afloat uh maybe you ask for forgiveness later but anyways yeah um you just do your best to not pull surprises or forget to ask as we have in that example that i just gave uh we're going to austin sutton hey austin i don't know why i just yelled your last name but i did guess that coffee is working this amp i was re-watching the 2016 season and i noticed several nasty pit collisions most notable and scary is the Rossi and Castroneves won at Pocono on pit lane. So I was wondering if IndyCars looked into electronic pit release systems or what IndyCars done in recent years to make pit lanes safer. Um, I'm not totally sure what you're thinking here on electronic pit release systems, meaning is there a person that is in charge of that? Is there a load-based thing? vehicle hits the ground uh load sensors pick up that weight then see the sensor saying the fuel probe's been pulled out then there's some form of uh searching to see if cars in front or behind or whatever it might be and the closest pit stalls are in those same states and ready to take off as well and where's from a gps standpoint cars coming down pit like you know i'm not exactly sure what you're thinking here austin the latter one 
that'd be a lot of stuff to ask uh, a computer to figure out and grant uh, release or not. I would just say that we do have spates of pit lane mishaps. Uh, if we think about last year, coming off of big break slash shutdown, teams not able to do much of anything in terms of pit stop practice, having to relearn, figure things out more or less at the events themselves, by and large during the races, and get into the groove. We saw for every team, biggest to the smallest, struggling, wheels not being tight and clashes here and things are slow and just a little too much bump and grind. Um, it was more of a situational thing in 2020, I'd say, Austin, but we do go through this sometimes where you go, boy, we've had a couple of you know, bad hits in a row on pit lane, maybe not every two or three races in a row, but over whatever short time span, and then we have none. I just say that, of course, if there's anything IndyCar might look into to make things safer, they have and will continue to do so. But since we're not talking, you know, since the question you're raising is about 2016, five years ago. And yes, of course, we can think of individual instances, but not an epidemic type thing taking off. I think it's just a numbers and it's a, an odds thing. And sometimes the odds are not great, but most of the time we're in pretty good shape of this not being a serious issue of drivers hitting drivers, drivers hitting crew members, and so on. Uh, Mike Stoops, how you doing, Mike? Says, what's your assessment of the Carlin IndyCar team? Says, considering their pedigree, did you think they might be a little further along, both competitively and in growth since their inception, and uh, not what appears to be just, quote, Gallagher Racing? That's a good question. I know that the team, run by a couple of folks that I'm very, very fond of in Steph and Trevor Carlin, they for sure envisioned when they jumped into IndyCar that they would be in a more stable and developed place. Hasn't really panned out that way, though. The desire to be two cars and two cars full-time consistently with the same driver. We know Max's decision to stop ovals, uh, barring the Indy 500, conspired against that a little bit. There was meant to be a funded driver joining the team last year, that fell through shortly before spring training. Recently mentioned that that's what led them to call up uh, my man Philippe Nazar to drive, former Carlin driver, recent IMSA prototype champion, to at least try and showcase the car and its potential. Pato, the year before, did some very impressive things in limited outings and whatnot as a super rookie. Um, you think about Having Charlie Kimball there, not a bad thing, but we know for sure Charlie wasn't coming in flooded with cash to bring. On the Gallagher side with Max Chilton, we know that that's been funding. We know that Gallagher has slashed Max's father, and the team have been kind to try and pay some drivers to be in that car on the ovals when Max is not. Great to see them on pole last year at one round. Guess what I'm getting at here and trying to describe some of this, Mike, is 
it's been spin the wheel of change instead of spin the wheel of consistency. One of their great assets, great, great assets, race engineer, Matt Grizzly. He left during the off season, uh, to go to actually, I'm not even sure if he was with the team at St. Pete to close the year. Uh, but nonetheless, he's moved over to Ray Hall Letterman Lanigan racing, uh, be working with Takuma Sato. Um, that's another change, of course. So I know this is a dream that a number of teams still have, and that is, what if we had all the sponsorship we needed for the season for not just one car, but two? We had quality, youngish guns, future stars, and or proven stars, at least one in the team, that we can build from year to year. And I'm not discounting Max. Max is genuinely talented. I don't know if I'd accuse him of always being equally motivated as a Scott Dixon, Joseph Newgarden, and a few others, right? There's thinking you are and saying you are, then there's demonstrating you are. Um, I mean, when Max is on, you know it, you see it. Just not always there. Um if Carlin were to have a Indy Lights champ coming straight into their team or a F2-ish champ, first, second, third type to come straight into their team in IndyCar, and they were able to have that driver for two years, maybe three, I think they'd be in a very different place right now. What I do respect, to close on this mic, despite seemingly constant, if not never-ending, change for them, they're still highly competitive, knowing all the caveats that I just mentioned. They are still capable of high-quality things. I think Max is going to have another decent year. Don't know if it's going to be great. We'll have to see. Uh, the engineering change is the one that I would say is really the the bit that keeps us from saying, um, you know, any grand predictions yet. But I just wish for them, knowing that they're such a quality organization and have immensely skilled mechanics, uh, strategists, and managerial layers, they are so much quality within the Carlin team I have no problem saying that I truly wish, (laughs) truly wish they had a young gun or champion or something in the program, the funding behind that driver, and a couple of years of runway to develop something with that driver. Look to our man as a little sidebar here, Sebastian Bourdais. What has the Foyt team needed for a couple of years now? Among many things, a true veteran champion caliber driver to come in with no anything to worry about. Look, I don't care what you think. I'm not trying to be polite. I'm not trying to be impolite. I, uh, but here's the main point. I'm not here to be your friend. I am here to win or come as close to winning as possible. 
and I'm going to tell you how close or how far you are. And I can because I'm a champ and a multiple-time champion. I've been the best for multiple years in this form of racing. You haven't really had that in a long time. You've had some who are good champions in junior formula or maybe have won a race or two or whatever, but never had anyone like me in this team, the modern era. So let's get our asses in gear. And hey, on the engineering side, there's some things you need here and there are some things you need there. And Look, Sebastian Bourdais is coming into a team that was already making some very impressive and impactful changes. It's not like they were at zero. He signed on and boom, they're now operating at 95% uh, potential. They had already made a bunch of really smart moves. He's also been his usual Seb self of, I'm going to tell you the truth. <laughs> and if you don't like it, I don't know what to tell you. But I'm not here to, to make you smile and make you feel warm and fuzzy if there's no reason to feel that way. That driver for Carlin, I think, would be transformational. And it's not because they lack knowledge and don't know how to do things properly. It's just they're still a young IndyCar team. They don't have a consistent foundation that they've been able to build from. So does A. And I'm just mentioning names. and It's not like there's any secret mention here, and I know that they're going to be going there next year or whatever. But Matt mentioned Pagano. Get a Pagano there. Uh, you get a I'm looking who else might be available. Who knows? Um, is that a hell? I'm kind of struggling after that. Who else can I, can I think of a Hunter Ray a couple years from now, a Hinchcliffe, a, I mean, they had Pato for a little bit, but you know, a Rosenquist, a give me someone who's either championship caliber or a young gun with a lot of quality experience already, I think they do really impressive things for Carlin. I hope that happens because I know they could become serious contenders everywhere they go if they're able to have that spark inside of them that could help lead them in directions that they don't know about. You know, that thing about you don't know what you don't know. Well, get someone in there who can help you know who does know when big things start to happen all right where else do we go here we've got a handful more questions matt philpot hey matt a member of the prue day says who has a final say in locations of in-car cameras for tv broadcast delara the series nbc the teams this question comes to mind because while watching some old broadcasts recently it stands out that there were some really cool shots in the 90s that are no longer used Matt, you are preaching to the choir, my brother. Yes, there are indeed some amazing views that are not used. I don't know why. Um, I know the series has ideas. NBC does as well. Uh, IMS Productions, BSI is another player in here. Uh, there's a handful that talk, think, strategize, and otherwise... But I don't know if there's one kind of, hey, I say it must happen and then it happens type person. Maybe there is. I just don't know who that is. 
need to get that video that I shot with the Shank team and Elio at Laguna done because I did just wantonly steal the angle that I loved off the rear wing end plates from Robbie Gordon's Valvoline Walker racing car that I hadn't seen forever that I just loved the most. Uh, the right over the shoulder camera, I know that's maybe a little bit convoluted now with the aero screen in place. Part of me wonders, could we still try it? Because it's so amazing. Granted, we do have something different now than we did back then. There were cockpit head surrounds back in the, not all the 90s, but uh, definitely picking up steam middle-ish uh, 90s and onwards. They weren't necessarily the full collar ones at all time. Uh, so you could still maybe see the driver's shoulders. Again, depending on the year, earlier 90s maybe more than anything, but see the driver's shoulders a little bit and arms and forearms and you could see the torque and twisting and fighting and there was a sense of wrangling that came from that angle Uh, shoulders and biceps and all that are pretty seriously covered up now but you can still see kind of elbow to fingertips at least so something that would give a little more perspective of the fight that goes on inside the car. So I think that would be amazing. I, am I forgetting Matt, or I don't know if I saw a lot of the nose cam shots last year, if any uh, of them, maybe there was, and again, I'm forgetting, but the nose cam thing was a thing until it wasn't a thing seemed to come and go pretty quickly. Uh, good rear shots, low shots. Uh, I, I would just love to see experimentation. And I know that these all have, except for maybe the nose shot, but these all have potential arrow penalties if one team or a couple of teams have some cameras in weird spots that others don't, or maybe some cars have them and others just don't at all. I don't know. Just trying to think out loud here of, boy, we live in an era where amusing people through visual means or in the case of stupid podcasts like mine, audio means. But boy, we sure do spend a lot of time staring at that little rectangle in our hand and seeing videos and photos. And boy, since that seems to be the new number one form of communication throughout the world, entertaining clips and images. Yeah, to your point, who's in charge of the, well, since we own the series... And we have our own production house and we got a lot of other good people we work with. We can come up with whatever we want. Uh, Maybe we should really think about serving this visual medium that the world now thrives on. Um, I'm with you. I I don't know who the one person is to pull that lever, but I hope it gets pulled. Uh, Mark Sanchez, Marshall, just following up on the racing documentaries you mentioned recently, which would make the better ESPN 30 for 30. The 1981 Indy 500 with Uncle Bobby and Mario or the split? Wow. This is thanks for all the great work you do. Best to you. Good health to your bride. Thank you, Mark. Really, really kind. If COVID did not exist, I might say the split. Knowing that COVID in general is has changed so many people's lives been a pretty depressing thing little admission here i've been fighting that depression for a little more than a month now uh it's a m and effort 
sometimes, friends. Do my best to make sure you don't see it, know it, or if you think that it's going on, it's minimal. But, yeah, um, I tell you, not fun. And I know that I'm one of bazillions who've dealt with it during COVID times or something similar. Thinking of whether it's, I'm just talking the U.S. here, whether it's the political nonsense of one side hating the other and the other side and just the constant nastiness back and forth, whether it is race, gender, I mean, sexual identity. I mean, man, just saying, the last year uh, has not been candy canes and rainbows uh, the way that it should. So I'd say, I mention all that. Because the idea of doing a documentary, a 30 for 30, and ESPN would be phenomenal for this. On the split, boy, it seems like that would be something better served for a time where just something that's sad and depressing and selfish and at times mean and definitely destructive, it seems like that might be digested better at a time when, yeah, uh, more folks are able to process such things without it dragging them down. That's why I would say without a doubt, Mark, 81, Uncle Bobby and Mario, the acrimony there, the law, legal angle, the you name it, and the fact that Uncle Bobby's involved, uh, you know, there'd be some heavy, not fun things said during that, but Uncle Bobby's involved, so there's going to be a lot of humor uh, for sure. So the world's smartest man who invented everything, uh, including everything. He also invented everything and then invented everything. Uh, being Uncle Bobby, yeah, that would be a blast uh, for sure. So I'm going to go there because I think we might smile a little bit more, be a little bit more entertained. The split, that's just sad and depressing. It really is. Uh, Andy Bauer, Marshall, is the movie Driven keeps getting mentioned in your podcast Curious if you've seen The Art of Racing in the Rain and what you thought of it. It's almost more a dog movie than a racing movie. And the F1 scene at the end was laughable, but otherwise I thought it was a good flick. It says, continued prayers for you and your wife. Thank you. We're winding down the show with nothing but awesome prayers. Andy, I have not seen it. It's been sitting on our DVR for probably a year. And uh, I've been in that mode lately of, hmm, DVR is at 74%. wonder if I should wipe this one off. I know I can find it streaming in a variety of places. Maybe that tells you what I expect from it, which is not a lot. I know that there's some IMSA scenery in there, uh, so that's cool. Wasn't aware of the F1 thing at the end. You know, the one thing that might have put me off on this a little bit? Sebring, was it? Um, whatever year it was being filmed or just been filmed. I forget. I apologize. 2018, 2019, 17. I don't know. Uh, Milo, I think is his name. The main actor in it. He and Patrick Dempsey, I believe, uh, were at Sebring. And I know Patrick a little bit, right? We're not buddies. We're not friends, but you know, kind of that known each other a while spoken enough times, et cetera, et cetera, where, you know, Hey, how you doing? You know, shake hand, hug, or hand, hug, 
hand hug. That's a new one. Uh, shake hands, little hug, whatever, little dap, some whatever, cool chit chat, you know, just friendly guy. And he was there with Milo. And I don't know the guy, you're right? I mean, I, I think he's in that This Is Us or This Is You or You Are You, whatever the hell the name of that NBC show is that I've never seen. Uh, I think I've seen an ad for it or whatever, but I don't know the guy. And I'm just saying, uh, I apologize. He might be a really well-known, famous, amazing actor. I just don't really know him. Recognize the face, not necessarily the body of work. So I just mention that because standing next to Patrick Dempsey, Patrick's a little bit of the bigger name at this time uh, while we're speaking. Pat Cools can be. The Milo guy looked like, pardon my French, could not give two shits about who Patrick was introducing him to, that being me. The scene around him, which is the amazing 12 hours of Sebring. Uh, the fans, the anything. I don't know. The, again, I don't know anything about the guy. Don't know if he's an introvert. Don't know if he's shy. I don't know anything. So maybe there's good reasons for all of it. I just know that in the one introduction to the guy, Andy, I could not have been less impressed. He could not have given two shits that Patrick Dempsey was introducing him to me. I mean, admittedly, nor should he. It's not like I'm anyone, but it's just taken aback a little bit. Hey, you made a movie. You're the star of The Art of Racing in the Rain. You are at a very significant motor race that at times does happen in the rain you're standing next to the guy who's very well known in this environment this was his passion project he's decided to try and introduce you to my dumb ass but someone he knows that he considers would be good to introduce the two of you to could not have been more invisible so just made me think i know you might not care about me give any crap you'll never see me again i have zero impact on your life i get all that but if the guy standing next to you who made this movie happen, I believe chose you to be in it, if he's trying to introduce you to a world that's important to him, at least pretend you give a shit. Seemed like the guy could not wait to leave, get on a flight to somewhere else and go do something else. So that little quick antidote, Andy, might be the reason why when I saw it was airing on whatever... I said, all right, I'll record it, but I just haven't been overly motivated to watch it, knowing that it's sitting there, but as little as he seemed to care about racing and the people in it, I might just be reciprocating that back in that thing sitting on the DVR for about a year. Now, did you think that was the answer you're going to get? Probably not. That's probably a lot more than I should have even bothered to share, but hey, I did. Uh, We're ramping down here. Darren Dubois, MP. Do you think Connor Daly's mullet is upset with the aero screen for blocking airflow? Also, should there be an in-car camera focused on his mullet going around Indy? Amazing question. Perfect question. Thank you. And thank you. Okay. Uh, Here's what I can tell you. You know, open face helmets, right? Old school. Haven't used them for a long time. But the old school helmets that had the driver's eyes nose and mouth exposed still get used right we, we see that not many but some forms of racing these days i think we actually need to have the inverse of that basically spun around 180 degrees 
So you still have the little rectangular opening on the helmet for the driver to look through and the visor to come down. But the backside is cut out like the front of an open face helmet strictly for Connor, a bell helmet, of course. So his hair can flow. Would it fly out from the sides and be long enough to leak out behind the little vent areas in the back of the aero screen? I can only hope so. And if it doesn't grow long enough, well, you know, there are these things called extensions. And, uh, Darren, we can get him hooked up. So the thought of Connor racing with an open, it wouldn't be open face helmet. It would be open mullet helmet and extensions. So that mullet is flowing behind the car a little bit, not too far behind, right? We don't want to get lit on fire by the exhaust, but something like that. And he's a ginger as well, a redhead. I mean, you just give the guy the milk. Do you even bother running 500 miles? Or you just say, you win. There's, I don't, yeah, there might be a car or two that's faster than you, but you win. No one else is going to be a bigger winner today than you. I think that'd be amazing. The only problem is, what are we going to have in 2022 at the Indy 500? 33 mullets. Uh, maybe I need to get in on this uh, reverse uh, bell helmet uh, open mullet design. I like where you're going here, my friend. I truly like where you are going. Okay, let's see. What's, uh, what else are we doing? Where else are we going here? Uh, Christopher D'Amato says, continued prayers for your wife and her recovery. Thank you, my friend. So as I mentioned in the past, our shared enjoyment of the Panos DP01, that being the 2007 Champ Car chassis. That was amazing, cited by many drivers, Sebastian Bourdais, Will Power, etc., as their favorite. Um, only lasted one year, though. Wishing it could have been seen, I wish it could have seen a lot more life than it did, Christopher says. I know it isn't exactly a front-burner type of new questions, but since we're at least a couple years away from a new chassis, any chance Jay Fry and company would consider dusting off the blueprints for the DPO one to inspire the new chassis. So I would assume IndyCar has the info or they have, or would they have to go to the Panos family to get them? So no, uh, I don't think IndyCar would have that because that's, I don't believe any involvement when uh, they took champ car into the family. Now, granted, there could actually be, but in terms of ownership, the IP, the actual owning that design, yes, that is uh, the Panos family. So I love this idea. I possibly love it better than almost any other thing that comes to mind for the next generation chassis. Would not be able to just build more of them. They would have to make some pretty significant modifications to accommodate the Kerr's battery and motor generator units and all kinds of things. So there would definitely be some tweaking uh, that would be needed to a design. But I love the idea because it was so beautiful, so fast, so balanced. Many, many things. The balance would be another thing that would require a lot of work uh, with this extra Kerr's weight coming into the cars. But if we're talking a starting point, knowing that it might, it probably wouldn't be a replica, but it would be inspired by, as you mentioned, I, this is, this is winning right now. I mean, the only other thing is, okay, the design goal is to come up with 
a Red Bull X-Wing type thing, something that looks like it's from outer space, from the future, and incorporates the new generation hybrid power unit and aero screen and all that. It's either for me, hashtag me personally, <clears throat> as my voice breaks and I go through puberty once again on the show. It's either let's go to outer space with the next design, something that looks so cool and amazing, but just breaks from what we've seen uh, and goes to something where you go, wow, we got to go to the track to see this because it does look like alien technology with four Firestone tires on it. Or, hey, wow, that Panos DPO one was just beautiful. Drivers loved it. And we'd be going to a power level that's actually a little bit more than what it had. One of those two directions. I think you got at least half the equation covered here, Chris. So thank you, brother. Um, Ryan Terpstra, how many first-time winners do you think we'll see in 2021? Well, first of all, you're an all-time winner. So there's that. We love you. We love ourselves from Ryan Terpstra, the uh, spirit vegetable of our show. Let's go through first times here. Um... Who's going to win their first race this year? Pato Ward, for sure. I think that's the easy answer. And if he does not win more than one, I will be very surprised. Uh, Marcus could. I would maybe put Alex Pelot right there with Marcus. Um, I think Alex gets a win this year. I'm still hedging a little bit on Marcus. I feel like he can. I just don't know if he will. But I feel like let's go ahead and pencil in Alex and Pato for sure uh, for at least one victory apiece. Mentioned before in the show, Dale Coyne, as a strategist, a strategist, he can do some pretty cool things based upon funky conditions. Makes you know, Granted, I don't know if, which. I assume he'll be on the uh, Groschon entry. Makes me think Romain could win a race this year. On pure pace, nothing strange, no, nothing wacky, just normal run from green to checker. I don't know if I'd put him in that conversation, but if there's some sort of off-time yellow and Romain had pitted just before and the whole field stops and he's promoted to P1 and holds on to the checkered flag, I could see that for sure. Coming back next year, assuming that he does, uh, I think the former scenario might be a, a little bit higher percentage. Don't know if I see Ed Jones winning on his return. I'd love to see it. And again, it'd be great for him, great for the team, but not totally sure there. I, I want to say Renus. The kid has the talent. Has the Ed Carpenter racing team made enough of a leap to be in that winning on pure merit conversation? Not totally sure. Not totally sure. Um, I think they've made gains. Just not Again, we'll see. I know the kid can win. I know that Renus can go win at least a race. Um, Looking at the rest, eh. I don't know if Scotty McLaughlin is ready to win in his first year. Second year, I think yes. First year, I mean, I'd be surprised if he's on pole and wins a race somewhere. Not doubting him, just he's in that man. He's got a lot to learn, and he really is not experienced in open-wheel cars thing to deal with. 
I mean, Romaz learning new tracks and a variety of things, but you know, the guy's, uh, ultra experienced in open wheel. So, I mean, really the only other question here for me is Jack Harvey. I don't know if this is the year or if it's next year, Ryan, but I think Jack's got a win in him. Maybe some wins. I'm not sure. Right, that team is still learning. They have that great technical alliance with Andretti, but not sure where Jack's at. But I'll tell you, it feels like he's on the cusp of something significant. I love that guy. Have since I first saw him the road to Indy. Uh, this team is developing quickly. I just would struggle a little bit to say he's winning this year on pure merit. Of the couple of things I'm looking forward to learning, and I would imagine some of you are as well once the season gets going, where does Jack and the Meyershank team fall in the old pecking order of competitiveness? Let's see. We're out past an hour and a half. Let me pick a couple here to close. Got three to go. Pretty easy. Kevin Perez Frederico. Love your name, by the way, Kev. It's sing-songy. It says, MP with Honda ending its F1 program after the season. Do you think Yuki Tsunoda, who had an impressive debut in F1, would try his hand in IndyCar with Honda of Japan or HPD support uh, to do it? He says he loves Takuma Sato, but don't know how much longer before he retires and IndyCar will be without a Japanese driver. I'm making a couple of assumptions on the framing of the question here, Kev. That being, we know that Honda's leaving at the end of the year. Uh, we would assume Honda's backing of Sunoda uh, would be going as well. We don't know that, right? Could they be out of F1 and yet still putting some money behind Yuki to stay with uh, AlphaTauri or who knows where he, uh, you know, or, or maybe moving up to the mothership at Red Bull? Possible. Tell you, though, looking at his debut... No, he finished 10th, so last place in terms of points paying, but the fact that he was very competitive, had a rough start to the race, uh, but that he was very competitive all weekend, and there are high expectations for his talent uh, being demonstrated in F1 once he got there. Even with Honda gone at the end of the year, and let's say the faucet has turned all the way off in terms of funding for him, if this season continues going where I think it will for him, uh, I, don't, I think there's going to be a little bit of a bidding war to have him as a driver. Think about the variety of teams that could be dealing with a bit of change at the end of the year, who might be moving around from where to where. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, having Honda money is a great thing. Having any money is a great thing. I'd love to have more of it. But this kid... I think he is something special. So, to your point, if with Honda going away and if everything's taken away support-wise, would that mean he's done an F1 after a year and could he then look to IndyCar? All yes and could, and I would say without a doubt, if that played out. I just don't think it's going to play out. I would have to, again, I don't know contractually what he is or isn't obligated to and for how many years, but if this kid keeps performing the way that he does, if he makes the highly touted one race winning Pierre Gasly look no better than him in his debut season, if not puts him in his rearview mirror a few times, which I think he's going to do. Uh, 
both AlphaTauri and Red Bull are certainly capable of paying drivers to drive for them, as they have done many, many times with many people, some whom I wonder why they kept for as long as they did. So even with Honda going away, I don't see how that kid leaves F1 unless he just takes a total nosedive um, for the rest of the season. So would love to see him over here. Uh, just for him, I'd kind of rather see him over there representing Japan and doing big things on a much bigger stage. Uh, huge, huge fan of the uh, Sunodas of the world who represent Japan so beautifully. And yeah, uh, you're going to get more people, more love, more support, and more positive impressions for Asian drivers through Formula One than you will IndyCar. Uh, Simon Rafi, penultimate question. Say, third time asking. Thanks, Simon. Of all the women who have raced in IndyCar, who do you think was the best? Says, I know Danica won a race, but I always thought Sarah Fisher was a better driver. I'm probably just going to have to go in the most predictable direction, and that would be Simona Di Silvestro. Uh, Danica did win a race. Take nothing away from her in that capacity. She had couple of good years overall years right not just a good run at indy here good run there but actual strong performances uh throughout the entirety of a season um very skilled without a doubt sarah not a road racer right oval really only danica coming from a road racing background excelling on the ovals but also doing pretty darn good on a number of road and street courses too um at select points in her career can I tell you who had the highest peak of potential between Danica and Sarah? Probably not. I know that Sarah was never with a Penske or Ganassi type organization. It's taking nothing away from the Walker racing team. She was with very good team. Um, when she came into the series and with them, with Derek for a little while, there. very good team, not a front runner, but very good. I would just have to say, having watched the the two women you've mentioned here race uh, with Danica, that would be in Atlantics for the first time, watching and observing. Sarah did not see her before she got to the IRL, but definitely was paying a lot of attention. I was there the last year or two of my career when she came in. Um, Hyper-talented. Simone is the one that I looked at and just said, this is the woman who scares the crap out of everybody. <laughs> the boys and the girls, the men and the women. She is bonkers in terms of talent. And the thing that was unfortunate is she was tied, barring super short period in her IndyCar career, with smaller teams. And that'll stunt one's overall development. Danica with big teams the entire time. Um, Sarah, not so much, but I'd say Simona. Yeah. If we just went into that fantasy scenario, Danica coming into IndyCar, Sarah and Simona realize we're talking some different eras, but if we're talking about today, all three women show up, going to start the season, all three of them, Ganassi drivers and Dreddy drivers, Penske drivers. I think Simona is the one that makes all of us stand back and go, holy crap. Uh, not just speed, but the passing and daring and watching some of the things she did back in Atlantics, for example. 
against some monsters. Uh, it was clear she was not only not afraid of anybody, but she was out there trying to take heads. And when you're trying to scout people, <laughs> I mean, that was, was, and I would have to hope is still her driving style. And I don't know if that's something you teach. I think that's instinctual. I don't know if I saw that hunting for scalps type thing with Danica or Sarah to the same level, same degree. Not saying they didn't have it, just saying who was fearsome in that regard. Yeah, that would be Simona. She's still young, and I hope she gets to play with our friend Beth Peretta for years to come and maybe become full-time. Man, that'd be amazing, especially provided if the uh, Penske link continues technical alliance or something. Yeah, that would be pretty awesome. Final question of the event, I think. Uh, You know what? We got one here. Actually, I'm going to get to this one. Thought it was going to be the penultimate for you, uh, unfortunately, Simon, but realized that uh, I actually reached out and got an answer for this one, and I, if I was smarter, I would have moved it closer to the top of the show. So this is the new penultimate uh, question for the episode here. Question about Juju Noda. Some of you might have no idea who I'm speaking about. This is the 14-ish-year-old daughter of former F1 driver uh, from Japan, Hideki Noda. She definitely held in high regard in terms of potential young age and all that stuff aside made some pretty significant waves in europe in junior open wheel racing came over here and signed to drive with jay howard's team right uh pretty serious heavyweight in the uh prella motorsports uh usf4 category and last weekend read jamie o'leary's question Saw Juju top a practice session. I believe it was the final practice session. Yeah, right ahead of qualifying. And withdrew from the event. And he's, as he says here, citing external factors that Juju should not have to deal with, end quote. From, uh, I believe, Twitter is where they posted uh, something. Jamie says, it was assumed by people on social media that this is related to hate-based incidents against Asian Americans last week something the Noda camp denied before this whole thing escalated. So what were these external factors? Uh, I read suggestions that her car had been found illegal after practice, but there was no confirmation of this by USF4 or by the team. Um, Let's see. In fact, the series seemed very keen to distance themselves from saying anything other than they chose to withdraw and we'll leave it up to them as to say why. Are we looking at a clear-cut situation that's become shrouded in mystery? thanks to some pretty odd communication from one side and a total lack of it from another. Reached out to learn about this, Jamie, like you, but without the looking at all the other things that rose up, because admittedly um, I wasn't paying a whole lot of attention to it last weekend, the USF4 side, because, I don't know, um, trying to be with my wife and live a life and be normal. Um, but I appreciate you get me up to speed in some of the other bits reached out to someone who would know i'll leave it at that wasn't a on the record conversation it was a hey i got a great question from jamie o'leary and i'd like to answer it without sounding like a total idiot so could you help me so uh again provided insight 
I'll just share with you what I was told without giving too many specifics. The hate-related incidents against Asians in America angle was nothing that I heard related to anything. So I would say, to my knowledge, I'm not making any claims for this being a fact, just saying I asked someone who knew, not secondhand, first, but, or not second or third hand, but truly firsthand, no question. This was never mentioned, never part of anything was told that after Juju led topped the final USF4 session prior to qualifying, uh, her father asked to speak. Folks in charge of her effort did and said, have to pull out, have to exit, have to stop now. Bit of a... Whoa, 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 what? Reason cited something along the lines of sponsorship. Cannot tell you exactly how that makes sense because if we're talking about a car being on track for multiple sessions already, entry paid for for the weekend, tires paid for for the weekend, Money has already come out of pocket to be there. It's a bit like deciding in the middle of a movie to get up and leave. You go, okay, they're not going to give you your money back. Uh, You can't exactly put half the popcorn back in the bag or half the soda back in the thing and in the cup and back out of this. You're already here. Again, you've kind of eaten half the meal. You've seen half the movie. Uh, there's no reason to not finish the meal, finish the movie, and yet there was a decision, got to stop now, got to go. Um, the reason cited was funding, sponsorship. Now, I am unaware, nor was I made aware of, Jamie, of anything like it's all gone. There's no more coming. Um, uh, What got us into start the season and doing whatever testing and this, that, and the other was all out of our pocket, all with the expectation it was going to be repopulated with sponsor money. None of those things said or explained will tell you that for those who aren't aware, her car, sponsored by primary sponsor, and I'm not sure if it's Rokit or Rocket, but the same sponsor announced as the primary for our French fry, Sebastian Bourdais at AJ Foyt Racing, at least for what was presented. And I can't tell you if it's accurate, if it's a bit of a false narrative being presented for the reason why if there's some other reason that was being cloaked in the sponsor issues thing i cannot tell you jamie if any of those things are real but i can tell you without a doubt funding was cited as the reason for got to turn the party off and stop right now once again 
Uh, money had come out of pocket to be there. Teams don't run a car on credit or quality teams don't run a car on credit. Yeah, we'll go do all this out of our pocket and then you'll pay us sometime in the future. Uh, no, especially at this level where it's a little more hand to mouth financially for team owners, lower levels of, of junior series. No, 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 no. Uh, we're not going to go do all this on our own dime and then hope you pay us. There's money coming out of pocket up front. And I'm not saying you're prepaying the whole season, but you're definitely you're going to get things rolling. And yes, this is you making this happen, not us making it happen for your son or daughter. And then you get us back some other time. So knowing that that's the general business practice, Jamie, that's why this really doesn't make a lot of sense. So I don't know if we're going to find the real answer. If the sponsorship thing was the real answer, even though it doesn't make sense because they're already at the first, you know, they're already there and things have been paid for to race. So weird and sad because Juju, again, cited as one of those, hey, more the badass young woman coming up to be the next Simona, Sarah, Danica type than a kid without that kind of high ceiling final question here luis felipe rojas calderon thank you luis for telling me that rojas calderon is indeed your last name last episode i just simply said luis calderon so i apologize marshall jefferson pruitt the second apologizes for not getting the accurate number of names included in the answer in the citation of your question Jesus, I need to stop. He says, hey, Marshall, Luis Felipe again. So happy for you taking my question in the last podcast. I want to ask you about your favorite Alex Zanardi moment. Again, a big fan, uh, and thank you. Wow. I mean, hey, man, that's what I do. Uh, sitting here yappity yapping with my face. Um, favorite Alex Zanardi moment. I guess what comes to mind is more recently, what was it, 2013, 14, whatever, Indy? When Chip gave Alex uh, one of his old championship-winning Renard Indy cars, uh, I just love seeing Alex's reaction to it. He wasn't totally unaware that it was going to happen, but uh, that's maybe the thing that I loved seeing most in terms of recent times. was really fortunate to have my, I guess, last year of working in Indy Lights, should have been 1996. Uh, actually, I guess I, I shouldn't say that. I did work in what we now call Indy Lights in 2005 was my last time working uh, there. But anyway, in the series or for a team. But anyways, my last season in Indy Lights, 96, was Alex's rookie year in cart. And so with Indy Lights as the uh, top feeder series to the cart IndyCar series, it meant that I got to see a lot of rookie Alex Zanardi plying his trade, learning oval stuff and demonstrating his skills on road and street courses. So 96 was also the uh, championship year for old pal Jimmy Jimmy Vassar. Uh, But I was crazy fortunate to be at Portland when Alex won his first race and at one or two others as well um, that he won that year. And so it was just really amazing to see this guy who I'd known and followed since, I think, Formula 3. 
I know, I mean, I followed him a little bit then, but really heavily in Formula 3000. Then watched his career move into Formula 1, rarely with exceptional teams. Uh, Then into the wilderness a little bit in sports cars in 95. Told the story many times of being in the the one main public bathroom, this old kind of shack of a just despicable thing, in the Monterey paddock in 95 there with the, the Genoa Indy lights team being in there just standing you know doing using the urinal taking the proverbial leak and looking over my left shoulder and seeing alex zanardi there at the final race of the year taking a leak and a little bit of you know you really try not to talk to one another while you're handling your business but uh once done and over washing hands just asked him hey what are you doing here i mean i recognize him i don't think many others would uh because again no real profile in america but yeah uh, he said he was here meeting with teams and i was so happy um so that being the end of 95 ended up getting the drive with ganassi and then just watching him flourish and be his alex and self being at quite a few like i said of those races in 96 97 98 not so much since i was over on the earl the irl side but did get to a handful of kart races and uh saw a couple of those victories as well so i know i don't have a real hardcore specific other than the jubilation on his end uh and the team for him winning at portland as a rookie um and then yeah it just it seemed to be inevitable and it was not just the win but oh my goodness this guy's gonna get it he's gonna figure this out and once he does Oh, I think we're in a lot of everyone else is in for a lot of pain and indeed that's what happened. So just being able to see some of that, him walking the paddock, trying to find a home at the end of 95, that coming to fruition and then going on and just terrorizing IndyCar for, uh, those three straight years, uh, before moving to F1. Those are the things I remember and they're very general things. But, gosh, it was electric back then. Uh, Those target cars, Vassar and Zanardi, epic, epic teammates. So, yeah, that's just what I remember in a very general sense. All right, I am Marshall Pruitt. This is our Marshall Pruitt podcast brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, and TorontoMotorsports.com. Look at that. We're not even at two hours yet. We'll speak to you next week. Oh, by the way, our guest this week, Doug Bowles. Indianapolis Motor Speedway president. Questions are going out here ASAP.